listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Again, we're in John chapter 15 today, and so if you have your Bible or your phone open, uh, would you look there with me? John chapter 15. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I confess to you, as we start, that I know little to nothing, closer to the nothing side about plants, pruning, anything like that. In fact, I literally do a hack job of pruning my rose bushes, knockout rose bushes every single February because a brother in the church said that that's when I was supposed to do them. That is the only plant I prune every year, and I don't know if you could actually call it pruning. So I confess to you that I don't know anything about actual pruning. I'm thankful that I have one of the most resilient plants in all the South in my front yard. That is knockout roses. And I don't know that officially. I just know that because of the job that I do with them every year. Like, I'm thankful for those knockout roses. So I'm just confessing that to you. But thankfully, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine, while it may sound random to us who are just jumping into this passage Jesus has not left us without contextual clues. So it doesn't matter your horticultural experience when you get to this text because Jesus has given us everything that we need to understand his word. And I'm thankful for that. And I just want you to know that we're kind of on the same page here. This is Jesus's words to the people of God. And so here we are. Now we've been looking at seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. And this happens to be the last of those. And it's found smack dab in the middle of the section that scholars refer to as Jesus's last discourse or his, his final discourse, his farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17, which happen to be the conversations and all those events that happened the night leading up to Jesus's arrest. So I need your help a little bit. Some participation will be helpful. If this is the night leading up to Jesus's arrest, does anybody know the place, the room, 
that Jesus and the disciples have been in up until this point? Anybody know where they are or want to take a stab at it? They've been in the, somebody said it. They've been in the upper room, okay? Everybody, everybody got that? They've been in the upper room up until this point. And a little more, what events happened in the upper room that evening? Anybody remember what kinds of things took place that night? The Passover meal was celebrated. What else? What is it? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Absolutely. Anything else? The betrayer was revealed. Not that everybody knew it, but it certainly was communicated, right? And Jesus shared with his disciples what was about to happen, though they didn't exactly understand it. And not only was the betrayer revealed, what ended up happening that evening to the betrayer? Where did he go? He left. What'd you say? He went to the high priest, and so we're not going to get that... get to that today, but just so that you have some context, that's what's happening. That evening, in the upper room, Jesus' disciples have shared a meal together. They, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. The betrayer has been revealed, and Judas has left the scene. So that is where we are. Now, if you still have your Bibles open to John chapter 15, I want you to look right before that to chapter 14 there in verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples at the end of that verse, rise, what? Let us go from here. Where is here? The upper room. We're all there together. Everybody good? So rise, let us go from here, the upper room, with the context that we're all aware of now. So here's the scene. Jesus and his how many disciples at this point? 11 disciples because Judas has removed himself. The 11 disciples plus Jesus, they begin at this point making their way around the city that is Jerusalem. And we know later on in the chapters that they make their way uh, across the brook Kidron and they make their way into the garden of Gethsemane. And as they do this night, the, the moon is likely bright. It's, it's full because it's Passover season. And Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem, and it is very possible that Jesus, along with his 11 disciples, as they walk through and across the brook Kidron, see all of the vineyards across the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps Jesus even takes one of the vines in his hand and it is at that moment that he is able to say to his 11 disciples, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. In verses one through eight, Jesus gives us this beautiful metaphor of which there are really three parts. And you know those three parts. They are the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. So first, the vine. Now, if you haven't been here with us as we've walked through the, the seven I am statements, Jesus, Jesus is continually identifying himself with Israel's God by using the same name that he says of himself throughout the Old Testament scriptures, I am. 
Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Israel, it's important for us to know, is also referred to as divine. So here, not only is Jesus identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, but he's also identifying with Israel herself. In Hosea chapter 10, we see that Israel is spoken of like this, a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Now, Israel was chosen by God, planted and loved by God with a purpose to produce fruit for his glory throughout all of the earth. But Hosea continues. The more his fruit, Israel, increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So what happens is that Israel, in being planted with a purpose to produce fruit for God's glory throughout all of the earth, Israel, who was supposed to be a light to the nations to display the glory of God, fails to do what she was supposed to do, which was bear fruit. So when the Old Testament talks about Israel, a lot of times as the vine, it usually, this is important, is accompanied with a message of tremendous failure. When Israel is referred to as the vine, it's usually accompanied by a message of tremendous failure. So you could imagine as the disciples stand and look at the cityscape with all of the beautiful vineyards, and they hear Jesus say, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, there is probably a mixture of both fear and relief. Fear, because a story could be coming from the mouth of Jesus about how much they themselves, the disciples, have messed up. He's walked with them for the past three years. He knows their life. He knows the mistakes that they've made. He knows the ways that they have failed to submit themselves before God and for his glory. So there is probably a mixture of both fear, but also relief, relief as they begin to process Jesus's words. Wonder what they were thinking. Did, did you just hear what Jesus said? He's saying, I am what Israel was not. I am what Israel was not. Whatever you failed to do, Jesus says in these words, I will do it. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. I will see that you will be a blessing to the nations. My father is going to see that the nations will be blessed through you by me. Israel failed to fill the world with his glory. It's okay. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He's tending to every aspect, the vine and its branches. So Christ is the what in this metaphor? He's the vine. Second, the father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser in verse two gives us his aim. Look there with me. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You see, the Father is always working diligently to see that the vine yields the maximum intended fruit. The Father is always working to see that the vine and its branches yield the maximum intended fruit. We also see this in verse 8. By this, Jesus says, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, brothers and sisters, we'll get to it in just a moment, but the word abide is, is the word of this passage. Abide. And you'll hear about what it means to have responsibility in the Christian life soon enough. But before you do, it's important. It is so important that we see that the Father is tending to the vine and its branches in a way that whatever he intends to be accomplished will come to be. Do you hear that? Whatever the Father intends to be accomplished will come to be. And there's relief there. The third part of Jesus' metaphor is found in the branches themselves. And there are two kinds of branches. Branches that are what? There in the text. Branches that are bearing fruit. And what happens to those branches? They're pruned. And then there are other kinds of branches that what? That do not bear fruit and what happens to them? They're cut off. They're, they're taken away. The vine dresser prunes the branches that do bear fruit. Why? Don't miss this. A vine will not produce fruit unless its vine dresser with tenderness and precision prunes it removing a renegade shoot there or a dead leaf there. And while the pruning may be painful, it is absolutely necessary and good for the vine. While pruning may be difficult and painful, it is for the good of the vine and its branches. Consider Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves so that we may share in his holiness. In verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We often misinterpret the pruning process of the Christian life, don't we? Because so often, and I'll just speak for myself, so often I misinterpret what God is doing in my life. And I think I've hit this hardship. How can I move forward? There is no possible way that I can move forward. God must not love me because I've come up against this hardship. God must not care. I think that's one way that we often come up against hardship and the pruning process. There is also another way. Some of us might say, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care, and then there are times that we also would just say, I'm not sure if God is there. I've come up against this hardship, this feels like something that I can't move forward, and it's either that God doesn't love me or that God isn't there. And we experience this in the pruning process, and we get tired, don't we? 
when the pruning process doesn't relent after some season. And if, if I'm really honest, that long season that I would like to tell you that I get tired of, even if it's a long season, isn't really so long after all, is it? The hardship comes. God must not love us. God, God must not be there. And we begin to wonder if the pressure will ever relent. What is God doing in these moments, family? I'll say this. I think the text is showing us that God in the moments of pruning is ensuring our vital connection to the vine. In moments of pressure, in moments of hardship, when the Lord seems to be doing something incredibly painful in our life, it's not though that he is angry with us. He is ensuring us. He is showing us that we have a vital connection to the vine. Don't miss this. Pruning isn't a threat, family. It's a promise. It's not a threat, it's a promise. I will prune you, God says, but I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. There are the branches that are pruned and bear fruit. And we also see that there are others who do not bear fruit and are then taken away. Look at verse six with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So the question always comes up, as we read verses like this and we start to say, okay, hey, Pastor Chris, is the text saying if at some point a Christian isn't bearing enough fruit, don't miss this, that he'll be cut off, that he'll lose his or her salvation? Is that what the text is saying? Because I'm very concerned, and rightly so. Is the text saying that? The answer is a resounding no. A resounding no. We can't take the metaphor too far. In fact, just tuck this away as you read the Bible personally and devotionally. Anytime you come up upon a metaphor in Scripture, it's important that you don't take it too far. Take it as the way the author intended it. Jesus isn't telling us that there are two kinds of Christians, ones that are pruned and bear fruit, and then there are other Christians that are actually worthless, and they're going to be cut off and hence discarded. No, he's saying here that there is only one kind of disciple, and that is the kind of disciple that bears what? Fruit. That's the only kind of disciple that it is. Fruit bearing, though, does, does not bring about your salvation, but rather it speaks to the connection to the vine. Your connection to the vine, life, is what produces fruit. The reality is this. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, connected to the life source that is the vine, and you bear no fruit... You have no reason to believe that you are a Christian. A failure to produce fruit does not mean that you are a bad Christian, but rather that you are not attached to the life source that is who? Christ, the vine. But hang on. This is really important. It was just earlier that evening. This is why I want us to see this context. 
that Jesus had gathered in the upper room with all of his disciples. And before the dinner, Jesus sat there or he kneeled there before his disciples' dirty feet and he washed their feet and he said to them, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. And he said to them, but not all of you. Fast forward to where we are now in John chapter 15. Jesus, probably on the mountainside, again, looking at all of the vineyards, now looks at the 11 disciples because who left? Judas left. He looks now at the 11 disciples knowing their hearts, knowing the waywardness in their minds as well, knowing the sinful patterns that they each have been showing and revealing all along the way. He knows the pride in which Peter said, Jesus, even if all of the other disciples fall away, I will never leave you. He knows the pride. Seated in Peter's heart. The disciples must be wondering if there are two kinds of branches, those that bear fruit and those that do not. Which are we? And with tenderness, Jesus speaks to their hearts. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I love that Christ knows that even those that are his are going to wonder that at times. Anybody there? Even Christ knows that those who are his, that are vitally connected to the vine, that the father, the vine dresser, has been ensuring that they will see through pruning, through great difficulty and hardship, that they are vitally connected to the vine. Christ himself knows that even those who are his are going to wonder at times. We all have moments of doubt, even those that are connected to the life source And Jesus speaks directly to those doubts here in this text. And it is beautiful when he says, already you are clean. So before you begin thinking that it is the fruit of your life, the fruit that you produce that saves you, that it is the fruit that gives you life even, Jesus steps in with a gentle reminder and he says, I am life. I am the vine. I am the source that you need. I'm the savior. The disciples must have wondered, if you're the vine, if you're life, if you're the source, Jesus, then what is our role? What's our responsibility as branches? Verse four, look there. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Now, abide is not a word that we run across very often. And yet Jesus, is, Jesus uses it nine times through verse 17. The Greek word, just for fun, is meno. And meno, literally, not meno, my southern accent comes out heavy. Meno literally means remain. It means remain. It's a homemaking term. It means to stay put, be at rest, to get comfortable. And with this word abide, there's an invitation and also a command. 
One author put it this way, on the one hand, abide suggests resting, like a child leaning upon his mother's arm, leaning into his mother's embrace. This posture of reliance for care and even survival, like branches depend upon and abide in the vine. So on the one hand, abide gives us this picture of utter dependency, for apart from me, you can do nothing. But on the other hand, abiding is a verb. It's an action. It's something that you do. It's a command from Jesus, abide in me. But the picture that Jesus has before us is this, that he commands us to rest in him. The invitation and a command to abide. Now, some of us want the Christian life to be in, packaged in these neat little to-do lists. Pastor Chris, just tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do to be labeled as a good Christian. Anybody ever feel that? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do so that you could say you're living a good Christian life. Now, you wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but somewhere deep down, it's like, if you could just tell me exactly how many times I'm supposed to read the Bible in a week so that I would feel a little better, that would be great, Pastor. If you could tell me that the amount of money that I am giving from our monthly budget is the appropriate amount for a good, generous Christian, then I would begin to feel a lot better, right? If you could just tell me exactly how many times, like is once a year enough times to share the gospel with my coworkers? Like is that enough so that I could begin to feel better? We like these neat little to-do lists. Jesus gives us this word, abide, to show us that the Christian life is more about intimacy with God than anything else. It's about intimacy. It's about relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's about relationship with Him, a vitally connected relationship to life. That's what Christ wants from His disciples. There's a vital connection between the vine and and its branches. A branch is desperate for the vine. It doesn't even think about it. It's absolutely connected and needs the vine for its source of life. There is no life apart from the vine. If you take the fruit off, if you take the branch off of the vine, my kids do this all the time, even these little pesky dandelions as we're like scooting down the street, they have these scooters and we, we just start like driving up to the square. No, not driving. They think they're driving, but they're riding their little scooters. They're running down the street and they're like, dad, look at the dandelion. Let's go take this to mom. And they remove it from his source of life. And before we get back to the house, that thing is nothing. It's nothing. It absolutely needs its life source that is the vine. It is nothing without it. It may look pretty for a moment, but without its life source, there is nothing there. Verse four, we're in utter need of Christ. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if we abide in Christ, verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
as we stay connected to the source, the life source that is the vine, as the branch remains with the vine, so the vine necessarily causes the branch to bear fruit. And in this, God is glorified, verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The father is glorified when his children bear much fruit. Now consider what we've already seen as to what the father's role is. The father is the what in the metaphor? He's the vine dresser. And the vine dresser's role and responsibility is always to see to it that the vine itself with its branches yields maximum intended fruit. And as we hear this, it is good for us to remember as Christians that God himself is the one that is seeing too that we are indeed sanctified, growing in the Christian life. It's his responsibility. He'll see to it that you are growing in him, Christian. He'll see to it if you are connected to the vine that is the source of life, you will necessarily bear much fruit. He'll see to it. He'll prune you in a way that you will indeed produce that which he set out for you to produce. Now, I want to give you a picture of abiding. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, Jesus tells us this story about a prodigal son. And the prodigal son has asked, some of you are familiar with this story. It's okay if you're not. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a summarized version of it. In this story, Jesus tells us that this prodigal son asks for his inheritance up front. Now we already know somewhat of a situation that this, fi- this man finds himself in because, man, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but if I were to ask for my inheritance up front, my dad would be like, what are you talking about? There is nothing, son. But this young man is given, at his father's disgrace, he's given his inheritance and he goes and uses it up on lavish living. He does whatever he wants to do. He's just like, man, I want to do this with my life. I think that this is exactly what I need to have maximum life. And he goes and does it. Whatever his eyes see, he does it. Whatever his heart desires, he does it. Whatever he puts his mind to, he does it. And he does that up until the point that all of the money runs out. And when his money runs out, where does he find himself? Do you remember? Eating with the pigs from a pig trough. And as he's eating with the pigs, he thinks to himself, man, if I were to go home and to be at dad's house, I would at least be better off than the servants that are at dad's house than I am right now, eating next to the pigs, eating next to the animal that never sweats. They're so nasty, delicious, nasty. That's where this guy finds himself and he starts plotting the way back. He starts thinking, as soon as I see my dad, these are the things that I'm going to say. Dad, I, man, I, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm coming back. I would, just, I would love to be just a hired hand. And as this young man makes his way back from a very far distance, his dad, who has been longing to see his son, disgraces himself yet again by lifting up his robe. And he begins to run to his son. The prodigal 
who spent all of his money, who disgraced him by asking for his inheritance up front, who might as well said, dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have all of your resources. That dad lifts up his robe and he begins to run to his son and he embraces him before the son could even say everything that was on his heart and mind. And the dad begins to say, son, here's what we're going to do. I want you to have this robe off my back and I want you to have some rings on your fingers and we're going to go kill. Hey, hey guys, go kill the fatted calf. Go make sure we have the biggest and best party because my son was dead and he's alive again. Can you imagine that picture? The son who said to his dad, I wish you were dead. The dad is now saying, my child who was dead is alive again. Now, why do I share this story in the context of abiding? Because I think it, it, it sets up the context perfectly. Now, we don't know what else happens in this story. Jesus doesn't tell us. He gives us that picture and he doesn't say. But I want us to consider for just a moment. After that party eventually ended, as it would have, the son now goes back into his house. The house which he imagined he would never come back to because he had everything he could have possibly imagined. And the son, who would eventually go back to his room, must have at some point laid down on his bed, whatever that looked like at that time. And he must have looked up and thought to himself, I am home. My father welcomed me back. I wished he was dead. I'm forgiven. Whatever happens next, and again, we don't know, so I won't presume, but whatever happens to this young man next is in direct relation to his identity as a son. Whatever happens next is an outflow of what he experiences from his father. He was dead, but he's alive again. Whatever happens next happens because he's where? He's at home. He's in his father's house. He's remaining. The son had to go through all of the pruning, all of the hardship. He found out every bit the hard way because why? He thought life true life existed apart from relationship with his dad. But listen, that son soon found out that life was actually found in dependence. Tremendous dependence, not independence. He absolutely needed to be connected to his father so that he would indeed be where? Home. Jesus says, Christian, abide. Be at home. You don't have to look elsewhere for life. 
All those other places that you go, they don't matter. The ways in which you have ran this week, myself included, to find life elsewhere, it's, it's, it's found in relationship to the vine. Abide in me, and I in you, Jesus says. Isn't that beautiful? The prodigal son knew exactly what it was like to look for life elsewhere. It was a dead end. It left him bankrupt. Life was found back at home. And I would wonder, family, where it is this week that you've been looking for life. Christ says, abide in me and I in you. And you keep saying, yes, Jesus, I hear that. But if I could just get $500 more a month, I think I would feel better. There would be room in our budget and I could feel like we're just living again. We're, we're finally making it. Jesus says, abide in me. And you say, but, but Jesus, I, I might have found life over there. I'm going to check real fast and I'll get right back to you. You know, I fell off my spiritual disciplines a little while ago. January was back in the, you know, months ago. I fell off and I'm going to get back on the spiritual discipline wagon. Because if I could just get the right rhythm of prayer and if I could just get the right rhythm of Bible reading, I would feel like I was more connected to the Father. And then I would feel better and then life would be there, right? Jesus says, abide in me. Remain, rest, home. That sounds good, doesn't it? Life is found in Christ, Christ alone. And it's in in Him that we pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us the ability to come, to look to Your Word that you've preserved throughout the millennia for us, that we might have an opportunity to know you, to know life, to know that it exists nowhere else except in relationship with you through the Son. We thank you for his sacrifice upon the cross and giving us that which we do not deserve, life by giving his life. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we might run to you, cling to you, abide, be at home, at rest. Father, I pray for the man, woman, boy, or girl that has never trusted in Christ Jesus before today, that you might compel them by the work of your spirit, that they might resonate with the prodigal who who found life in dependence on you, not in independence. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.